Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Teen Brains featuring David Gillespie in conversation with Mandy Nolan, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Today we're talking about Teen Brain, which I think I left in the bag. <laughs> don't know where I put my Teen Brain, I'm getting it out later. <laughs> I've still got a teen brain. Uh, being immature, it's better than Botox. Um, there it is. Just so you have a look there. So the other day I was in a supermarket and I noticed, and you see this quite often, and it's it's the woman with the pram and she's got a, a child that can just sit up, probably just hold it, you know, it's 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 bottle, and it's holding an iPad and it's it can swipe. Uh I mean, the kid is swiping, it's enlarging, it's doing all this. And and I'm thinking, wow, we didn't have that when I had little kids. We had to, we had to put up with screaming kids. Um, you could see the convenience, but there's something, I don't know how you feel, there's something a little bit creepy and unsettling about seeing a baby holding a screen, particularly when we know about how important facial interaction is for developing social cues, etc., for children and for socialisation. So David has written um, Teen Brain. He's a former lawyer. This is his latest book, and, it, and it's looking at how screens are making our kids anxious and depressed. And in the book, he tells us how we can, he can stop it. So, well, not just him. We have to do it. <laughs> David will come round your house and... <laughs> Take your kids. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you'd come to mind. Yeah. Can't do it. Is it really that bad, David? Because I read it going, oh my God, what have I done to my children? Like, it, it kind of came in on my level of mothering because my kids are 24, 23, 20, 18, and something else. 10. <laughs> He's got six. Yeah, look, I, I, I put a lot of effort into this book. Uh, I had to, first of all, find a woman who was prepared to have a lot of children. <laughs> Um, so a bit, a bit of planning went into it. Um, uh, had six kids. Uh, How old are they? Uh, so they are from 23 down to 15 now, um, uh, which makes them all Gen Z, which is going to be important in a minute uh, when I talk about it. But uh, the planning required that we have three females and three males, otherwise the study wouldn't be balanced. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also made sure we had three left-handers and three right-handers. Are you kidding? They're well, that, yeah. it, it might matter. Um, <laughs> and uh, had a set of twins as well, you know, for that vital oh. bit of twin research. Um, that's yeah, amazing because you really do need to have twins in a research that's group. That's right. So, And identical twins, of course, so that you can <laughs> test environment versus genetics. Um, <laughs> but all of that, uh, with all of that background... I still wasn't sure I should write this book. Um, Why? Because I didn't think I'd be able to add anything to it. You know, I, I thought, look, everything that could possibly be written about teenagers has surely been written by now. Um, you can pick up parenting books from the turn of the 20th century that say, look, teenagers are moody, depressed, anxious, um, and generally dislikable to be around. Um, and I thought, well, is there anything really to add to that? Um, and I didn't think, and in fact, the, the initial title to this book, uh, and uh, Ingrid, my publisher, is probably here somewhere and can probably vouch for this, was uh, it's just a phase, because that's what I believed. Uh, I believed teenagerdom and everything that goes with it is just a phase. 
So and you started writing this book before yeah. you really had a thesis about what the issue was around yep. anxiety and depression. And are we at epidemic level, do you think? Yeah, look, I, I think we're, we're on, the, on the front edge of something really quite disastrous because what's going on is really interesting. And the reason that I, in the end, changed the entire way this book was going and decided it needed to be written was because I started to see the research which said two very interesting things. The first was that all of the traditional mechanisms of addiction for teenagers have gone off a cliff. Uh, Gen Z, the kids under 23, that's Gen Z, don't do drugs and sex and pretty much anything traditionally addictive. They're, all of those things are They, they don't the believe rate. that. Because no. we've just had Splendour in the Grass and... and okay, so a few still do. A, 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 few, a few still do. Our kids <laughs> do. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is yep. it has been almost part of the, a kind of a, an ongoing, I hate to use the word propaganda, but maybe the story of the media is that kids are using more and more drugs because there's all the issues but around the But the underlying truth But it's not true. No, the underlying truth is that's nonsense. Any addiction that requires you to be physically present has gone off a cliff in the last 10 years. Um, <laughs> Get kids off your screen, go and use Do drugs. not <laughs> do any of those things. It's a public health miracle. Wow. It really is. And we have it's not amazing. heard a word about it because no one can take credit for it. Right. Or the people who should be taking credit for it don't want to take credit for it. And they're the people making addictive software, which is what has replaced it. Now, we know a couple of things about addiction. We know that addiction leads to anxiety and depression. That's a biochemical fact. Mm -hmm. It's the way anxiety and depression works, and we know that. We know it with all traditional forms of, of addiction. So we would expect that if all traditional forms of addiction have halved in the last 10 years, then so too would teenage anxiety and depression. Teenagedom is when anxiety and depression happens. It's because when we, it is when we are most susceptible to addiction. We first become addicted to things during adolescence, because a control system in our brain is shut down during that phase of puberty. That happens. We know that. We've known it forever. Uh, so we would expect that when all traditional forms of addiction have halved, so too would anxiety and depression. Not only has that not happened, it hasn't stayed the same, it has doubled. And that tells us one thing very, very clearly. The traditional forms are halving because they've been replaced by something better. And that something better is software whose business model is to addict people so they can sell their attention. And that's what we're dealing with. Gen Z is the first generation where every single member of the generation has been exposed on purpose to highly addictive software as part of a business model. It's gone from something that is available to the adventurous few, this is addiction I'm talking about, something that's available to the adventurous few, to something that is now compulsory for every single member of a generation. So we are seeing the leading edge of that with a doubling of the rate of teenage anxiety and depression in the last 10 years. When we get to the entire generation that follows them, Gen Alpha, doing exactly the same thing, it's going to make now look like a holiday. Wow. So when we talk about, um, when you're talking about addictive software, let's, let's break that down to what we're actually talking about. We're talking about gaming. Well, there's two different types. Yeah. Um, so boys and girls respond uh, biochemically to two different forms of addiction. Um, so boys are addicted to danger. So uh, the testosterone may, reduces impulse control, uh, reduces the ability to judge consequences, increases the likelihood to do things dangerous, which is why teenage boys are three times as likely as teenage girls to harm themselves. Um, 
three times as uh, as likely to be uh, arrested for committing a violent crime because they like risk and they cannot judge consequences. Uh, interesting aside, the Bible got it seriously wrong when it said uh, that Eve came from Adam's rib. The biochemistry tells us it's the other way around, which is humans are by default female, and then there's an overlay of testosterone, which gives you the four-wheel drive version that does dangerous things without judging consequences. Um, so males are addicted to danger, and the software industry knows that, and they use coders called dopamine hackers to make sure that every single line of code is written to for maximum effect for someone who's addicted to danger. So they love things like Fortnite, which is a danger simulator. Now, it's very, very hard to get addicted to danger if you actually have to really go out and shoot people and have them shoot at you. It's very easy to do it if you can go online, get parachuted onto an island and kill 99 of your friends, in theory, on Fortnite. That's a danger simulator. It's expressly written to addict boys, and it works. Now, for girls, we have a different one. We have an approval simulator. So for girls, girls are entranced by something called oxytocin. Um, it affects boys as well, but much more powerfully on girls because testosterone suppresses oxytocin. So oxytocin makes us want to do things that make other people like us. So it, it is our group glue. It makes us bind together. So we will do things that a group of other humans think are good so that we feel good and they feel good. Every single bit of approval gives us a shot of oxytocin, which we find rewarding. Mm. Very hard, once again, to get addicted to that because in real life, what you have to do is go out, meet people, uh, do things they like, and have them like you. It's really <laughs> slow to get liked. Very, very slow. That's right. <laughs> but for the first time ever, we've been able to simulate that. Yeah. So any piece of software that gives feedback to the user about the number of likes they get, the number of comments they get, or the number of views they get, is expressly designed to simulate that experience. Mm. Every single like is another hit of oxytocin. And it addicts people very much on purpose. So let's talk and go back a little bit, David, to explain um, how dopamine works in a young brain. And I was really amazed reading that because a lot I don't know about brains, um, <laughs> which shouldn't surprise anyone. But I didn't realise the brain didn't like it kept growing um, from I knew it grew from the fetal stage clearly, but not till twenty five. The brain is continually growing and until that point. And the impact of, as you're going to explain, of how dopamine and dopamine stimulation works in relation to addiction. Sure. Okay. So uh, yeah, we're born about twenty two years premature, um, and <laughs> the the reason for that is that we have to grow a very complex piece of machinery, the brain, which just isn't going to make it out through mother's hips. Uh, and that all has to be done over a very long period of time. Various bits have to be built in the right order at the right time, and if you don't acquire the right skill at that point in time, then it's very, very hard to ever acquire it again. So, for example, if you don't acquire gross motor skills at the right point, it's going to be very, very hard to pick them up later, and that's why teachers are now reporting that kids coming to school can't catch a ball um, because they missed out on that bit. Uh, if you don't acquire fine motor skills at the right point in time, you won't be able to do that later either, which is why the same teachers will say these kids can't write or hold a pencil um, because fine motor skills is missing. It's why they're saying that kids are coming to school with a blank, uh, blank affect. Uh, they're unable to read other people's emotions. And that's because that particular skill is acquired uh, under 10 
and if you're spending your entire time communicating via a screen, you won't get much practice at reading people's faces. Uh, so all of these things are, are happening, and they're all very concerning in their own right, but there's a really important bit that relates to teenagers, which is at the start of puberty, um, we turn off a system that is that has up until that point protected us from addiction. So I'll just explain the way addiction works, which is we have a reward system designed to make sure we do things that ensure there's another generation of humans, uh, like have sex, eat, uh, and get the approval of others. People say, oh, the approval of others doesn't sound like um, a necessary reward. Uh, it is because as an apex predator, we're pretty crap on our own. Uh, we don't have claws, talons, venom, nothing. Any other apex predator could take us in a one-on-one -on -one fight. As a group, we're hard to beat. And as a group, we need to stay working together with strangers. And the thing that does that is oxytocin. So we seek the approval of others. Now, our reward system works on the basis of dopamine as the driver. So dopamine tells us to go seek the thing that provides the reward. It makes us anxious, it sharpens up our thinking, it sharpens up our muscles, uh, it, it just makes us generally better, sharper, faster, but also makes us anxious until we receive the reward. So dopamine fires us up, chase the reward. As soon as you get the reward, then something called GABA or GABA kicks in to shut down the dopamine so that we stop being anxious, the reward is there, and serotonin starts to flood the, the gap, flood the system. Serotonin is our brain's reward. It is, well done, you've got the reward, feel good, it makes us feel happy. Doesn't matter how many bad things have happened along the way, as soon as we get that serotonin hit, we feel happy. It's the way you feel after you get the reward, after sex, after a good meal, after the company of others. So, that is a normal reward system. We know all that, that's all hard science, we've known it for decades. We also know how to break it. How to break it is to push the dopamine side of that system. So, Keep hitting the dopamine harder and harder and harder and harder so that you never, ever get to the point where serotonin can come in. <coughs> That's addiction. Every addictive substance or behavior simply hits the dopamine button harder and harder. The faster, the more frequently you do it, the more likely you'll turn a reward into an addiction. Once you've pushed the dopamine system too high, what two things happen. Obviously, you're anxious because dopamine makes us anxious. But secondly, because it's still turned on, serotonin can't be released, which, can't, which means we can't be happy. So you're simultaneously anxious and depressed. There's a safeguard against this, however, which is that little thing I mentioned before, the GABA or GABA molecule, which is released when you obtain the reward. Except that in teenagers, it's not. In teenagers, it is shut down. The reason it is shut down is that GABA's real day job is to stop puberty happening. So the reason puberty doesn't happen immediately after birth is because GABA is suppressing it. And then at the right time, when the hardware is ready, it releases the brakes and off comes the GABA. That means that teenagers no longer have that necessary control system that shuts down the dopamine and releases the serotonin. It's temporary, but it's a 10-year temporary. It starts at the start of puberty, and it doesn't come back until the early 20s. The reason it's happening is because during that phase, teenagers are building the last bit of their brain, the really important bit, the adult supervision bit, the prefrontal cortex, which does all of our risk assessment, our consequence assessment, 
our uh, relationships with other humans, all of that stuff is being built at that point while the GABA is turned off. This is why teenagers have always been the riskiest phase for addiction. Always. Now you might think, well, that's a pretty stupid design from an evolutionary perspective. Fairly inherent, obvious weakness. Um, The trouble is that until very recently, teenagers haven't had access to much that could be regarded as addictive. Um, No one was wasting alcohol on them um, prior to about the 1950s. And access to things like nicotine, caffeine, sugar were very limited as well. Gambling was limited as well. These are all addictive things. But access to teenagers were fairly rare. And so addiction was fairly rare as well. I mean, these people would have lived through that. They had sticks to bang on fences. (laughs) They had... She's not talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) They they might have had a bike. Look at me addicted to my bike. Isn't it true that a lot of people, I'm not saying, but a lot of people here would have been a generation where they wouldn't have had anything to get addicted to. Well, it was was hard. Not staying outside. You had to go out of your way to acquire Mm. access to addictive substances. That all changed during the 80s and the 90s when more and more of the things that were traditionally hard for teenagers to access suddenly became more available. Gambling was available in newsagents, um, increasingly available online. Uh, you know, alcohol was more available, still not legal, but more available to teenagers, uh, and so were cigarettes and And there's an attraction, drugs. obviously, as well. Yeah. Is that is, is it at that age too, is there a stronger compulsion yeah, to, absolutely. to, to teenage, repeat the behaviour? Well, teenagers are driven to, to push the boundary of everything. So their brain is rewiring on a second-by-second basis every new experience that it acquires, and its motivation is to acquire as many new experiences as possible. Mm. Now, if those new experiences include addiction then those things will be wired into that developing brain, yes. which is why we know that a person who first becomes addicted during adolescence will be twice and up to five times as likely to remain addicted to that or something else for the remainder of their life. Right. Because they don't, they're not self-regulating at that age. You're not, well, some aren't, well, some they, more than they others. They don't have the adult supervision. Remember, that's the bit of the brain we, that's being we, built. Yeah, so <laughs> we have to be the regulator. We have to do it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It is, you know, there's an old joke, David. You know this one. You know, when you've got teenagers, you know why some animals eat their young. Because um, <laughs> it is, but that that's that, which leads me to that. Now that I think people have a bit of an understanding of of how how that how that works, um, I want to talk about schools. But before we talk about schools and the role, because I'm certainly as a parent of young people being fed the story that that this is a necessary evil. It's part of the world they're moving into, but it's. This was really hard for me because I'm not a parent that's ever said no. I go, no, 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 all right. <laughs> I demand fed every child, yep. not even my children sometimes, just people who come in. Each kid got three years. Yeah. I'm like a prized cow from the, from the um, Royal Sydney show. So I am exactly the kind of mother who has been a permissive parent. And and in this, it was hard to read because I thought I was doing the right thing by giving my kids whatever they want whenever they wanted it. Oh, look at them laughing. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but apparently that's not right, David. Uh, Well... David, tell tell me, David. <laughs> Can't wait to go home and say sorry, Ivy. You, I know that the other kids got away, but you. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
over. Well, the, the interesting thing is, like, the, the, the one study in there about demand feeding was quite eye-opening, which is a large-scale UK study about demand feeding. About 95% of parents demand feed now. Um, and the study was looking at comparing them to the, to the 5% who don't, yeah. uh, who just schedule feed. And, and that's flipped on its head. For, so after the Second World War, it was the other way around. Um, and comparing their parental confidence, their, their confidence in their ability to parent, Mm. And, and doing some really quite robust statistical analysis of that and basically finding that parents who, who schedule fed were 16 times more confident in their parenting abilities. Um, wow. Than but not as loving? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 reality, Sorry, the, the reality was that it's just the environment. Yeah. When, when you've got four kids and a household to run, which is what the case was after the Second World War, you don't have time to accommodate mm. um, the whims of a baby. The, the, the baby has to fit in with the house, not the other way around. Yeah. And, and, and that has shifted a lot to now we're at the point where, you know, a household in 1945 took 50 hours a week of personal labour to run it. Now it's 14 hours a week and both parents are working. Parents are prepared to shift their schedules yeah. around a child and less prepared to say no. They're prepared to do what you were talking about at the start, which is when the kid acts up, you hand them an iPad and they will shut up. The problem, the, the problem with that is that in never saying no to a child, even when it's a very young child, when you get to the point where that child is full of testosterone and wants to play Fortnite, it's a lot harder to say no. So in a sense, you're saying no to Fortnite when they're six months old. You're getting them used to the concept. That you will say no. Yeah. Well, yeah. training them in how to yeah. how to have no said to them. A lot of people here like this. Oh no. <laughs> and because it is, it's it's difficult, isn't it? I think most of us, you know, kind of fear the reaction and go, oh, it's too hard. In a sense, it's sort of lazy parenting a bit, I guess. How, I, how have you done it with your kids? Because I read in the book <laughs> that David, I don't. I'm surprised child protection didn't come for this. <laughs> he makes his children use a flip phone. Oh, yes. <laughs> A flip phone. Like, I've got a daughter that she would have, like, she would have left home. <laughs> she would have yes. gone to a foster home rather than use a flip phone, David. It, look, it's it's lucky they're cheap um, <laughs> because they get lost an awful lot. Um, never charged, never on their person, never there because it has, it has, the only useful thing it does is the least used app on any, any normal phone, which is the phone. Yeah, phoning uh, someone. Um, so, yeah, we give them a phone because public telephones are not that frequent or that not that usable these days, and we give it to them in the theory that we'll be able to contact them. Never have been able to successfully do that anyway, <laughs> so I don't know why we bother. Um, but the point is that the phone is really just a delivery vehicle for software which has been explicitly engineered with a business model of addiction. Right. Let's be really clear about this. this. is not accidental. This is not mythological. It's just hard business, which is it costs billions of dollars to write an app like Instagram or Facebook. It really does. And keep that maintained and keep that attractive. And they give it away. Can you name any other industry where the product costs billions to make and they give it away? No. Because that's not the business model. The business model is addiction. Every second of attention that they can get is another second of attention they can sell. And in order to do that, they have to use every single thing we know about the way human brains work 
and the way addiction works in order to get that extra second of attention and keep the competitors at bay and the advertisers paying. That's the business model. And these devices are delivery devices for that business model. That doesn't mean everything that they can be used for is evil. It's not. 99% of the software on, an, on the average device is good. It's helpful. It's beneficial to mankind. But embedded in there is stuff that is very intentionally designed to harm our kids. And we should care about that. It's really hard to, David, because, you know, schools now give our kids personal devices which they take home. I wish they gave them to them. They don't give them to them. Don't they? <laughs> no. Ah. <laughs> they make the parents pay for them. Oh, no. I think <laughs> I don't. I didn't pay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the sort of thing you want to admit in public. <laughs> it's all right. My kids go to a Catholic school. Uh, we pay after. Uh, it's after pay. <laughs> After pray, sorry. Let's do a George Pell joke, but I won't. Um, <laughs> but no, that, you know, how they get devices and suddenly, you know, and it's not a matter of you as a parent giving consent or even being informed how to, suddenly my kids had devices because we used to have one computer, they'd sit out in the lounge room, but now I bought a big couch, David, because I thought in our new house, we'd all sit on the couch together and watch TV. They moved in, got their devices and all locked themselves in their bedrooms and they were never seen again. Um, but how, how that, I mean, how can you supervise a young person about what they're using? They're not, I don't, I'm doing, when they say I'm doing my homework, they may be doing it a tiny bit, but. Well, the, the reality is you How can't. do you circumvent that process? Well, you have to make sure that they are used in the way you used to use it which is that the only time it will be used is in a public space. Um, so they will be sitting at a kitchen table or whatever, using the device there, and when it's not there, it's in a place where you know where it is. Right. And I had one lady, I hadn't even thought of this, one lady came up to me uh, when I was doing a book signing before and told me about after she read the book, her husband, who was a bit of an IT guru, turned off their Wi-Fi and put network cable in the house with only one cable point at the kitchen ah. table. So the only way they could access the internet was to connect to that cable right there. And I then thought, well, they that's got a trolley. <laughs> a pump. <laughs> it is really smart. But here is the conundrum, David. Yes. And I, I am really impressed that you and your wife have done this and kept your marriage together. Um, <laughs> this is actually what kept it together because it? Lizzie has always felt that this was a problem. Right. Has always felt it. Intuitive. And you didn't. And I didn't. I was the soft touch. You know, they knew that they could ask me and I would let them use their device. Um, so I was the soft touch until I read this research. And now <laughs> that I understand... until I read this book. Until <laughs> <laughs> so I read this book. It was a really excellent book. Um, until I read that research, I was definitely of the view that it was kids these days yeah, um, and stopped making such a giant fuss about it. But now that the, the evidence is there, and it is very clear evidence of the harm this is really doing and how it is doing it, then I'm no longer the soft touch. And, and so if anything, it's, it's kept us on the same page. How, I mean, how do we deal with the thing too about this concept of, of of the kids need to be accessing technology, using gaming, doing what they do, because it's preparing them um, for the life they're going to have in the future where they're, you know, there's 
virtual reality becomes a very normative part of their design processes that my daughter just came from working in Germany, working in virtual reality with BMW, doing design all the time. Like that, that was part of like in a, and now she's designing games to addict people. So, so that's, uh, <laughs> so that's, um, you know, that's from the Apple marketing workbook. You know, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Spin message number 101. Right. Um, it's nonsense. The business model requires that the average two-year-old could figure out how to use their software within the first two seconds. That's why the so kids are like this. There is absolutely no need to expose teenagers to it on the basis that they won't know how to use it. That is absolute nonsense. That's like saying, well, listen, we have to give every kid in the class vodka because otherwise they won't know how to handle their, <laughs> their alcohol. Um, and that's rubbish. <laughs> Maybe in some countries. <laughs> uh, don't know if you've, you've, you've been to Russia. Um, yeah, I, I get that. It's, but it is, you know, I, I, I think I totally agree with you, but I have to admit I, I, I as a parent that's never said no properly, I would have struggled Thank God I read it when the older hard ones have already been damaged. Uh, <laughs> Although if they're older than 23, they probably okay. weren't anyway. But um, all my children yeah. have anxiety. Tick. <laughs> <laughs> they're interesting, but they all do. They all have anxiety. They don't really have depression. I'm working on that. Uh, <laughs> what about the one thing, I mean, I can see that, I mean, it, there are a lot of mitigating factors, I think, for anxiety and depression in young people. I mean, climate change and the future they look at has to be – it just has to be another um, level, doesn't it? Like, doesn't that have to – Although the interesting stuff, the, the research on happiness, where they've been surveying happiness levels, and I, it's necessarily fudgy, you know, because you're yeah. asking people how happy they feel, but it's remarkably consistent, Yeah. Uh, which is that over the last 50 years or so, as they've been asking – people in, in the same countries, the same questions over and over again, people basically rate their background level of happiness as at about 6 out of 10. So they're not unhappy, they're not average, they're a little bit on the positive side of, of average most of the time. So if we could say that as a, as a reasonable metric, most of the time we're basically happy. We're not ecstatic, we're not unhappy, we're a little bit better than average. Uh, and, and that's an interesting background level because what happens, is, and, and people are starting to look at this intensely in the HR space, is when someone experiences a bad life event, uh, death of a loved one, things like that, that background level of happiness drops significantly. So it'll drop down to around two, and, it may, and it's mapped explicitly to the background levels of serotonin in our body. So serotonin keeps us happy. We have a level that keeps us at a certain level, and it will drop if something bad happens to us. The difference between that, which is quite a normal reaction to bad things happening, uh, and depression is whether or not it comes back. Uh, and the whether or not it comes back is determined a lot by what else is happening on the addiction side of the equation. So if there is something suppressing serotonin, like addiction, which is exactly what it does, or even lack of sleep, by the way, lack of sleep also suppresses serotonin, uh, then it won't recover. But if everything else is normal, if the addiction isn't involved, if they're getting normal sleep, then within two years, even the worst event will recover back from a background level back up to that sort of six right. level. Um, we've, we've reached the end of 
of this session. I, I really do urge you to go and buy David's book. It's a really great book and he, he does step through a lot of what we've spoken about today in explaining how it works, you know, how stuff works in the brain, how how it works, you know, with dopamine and dopamine overstimulation. And I think it is convincing. You have written a very convincing um, argument there and looking at parenting styles and what we can do and about getting the courage, I guess, if you've got children or, um, or grandchildren, about, about being able to say no. Because, David, you can't send a dick pic on a flip phone. Uh, <laughs> your kids have to ride around to people's houses with a they drawing. <laughs> or, this is a real story, or just sit next to their friend in physics and see the one that comes through on theirs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how lovely. Thank you very much. Oh, I just got one. Uh, <laughs> it's David's. Uh, <laughs> no. Please hold your hands together for David Gillespie. He will be at the book tent signing books. Even though it's rainy, I do, I do suggest you get over there and, and get that book. Is it also available as an app, David? <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.